And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 983. I'll begin by reading through the text, then I'll offer a word of prayer. And finally, we can begin our study together. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that, power, that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you so much for this Sunday morning. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church family and to encourage one another with our fellowship. We thank you, Lord, for enabling us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, I pray now as we examine this portion of your word together that you would help us to understand which you are communicating to us through the Apostle, that you would help us to make application to our own lives. Lord, that you would use this passage to give us a robust understanding of the role of a Christian minister. And Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are many different ideas about the role of a pastor in the Christian world today. One popular view sees the pastor as a chaplain. He's someone who's there to perform your weddings and funerals, someone to offer a quick prayer before you head into surgery, and of course, someone to lead Sunday morning services, but then not much beyond any of that. A more common view in our day sees the pastor as a CEO. He's someone who must have a dynamic personality. His job is to cast a vision and then to motivate his people to accomplish the vision. It's his job to shape the church's brand so as to make it as attractive as possible to the community. In more liberal circles, it's common to view the pastor as a community organizer. It's his job to energize people to become more active citizens. And so he gives himself to anti-poverty initiatives he organizes citywide cleanup days, he registers people to vote, uh, passes uh, petitions, and so forth. But what does the scripture teach about the role of a Christian pastor? Well, today we are in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul explains the nature of his ministry to the Colossians. And Paul mentions six characteristics of his ministry to them. 
But friends, as, as we look at Paul's words here, and then we compare them with the rest of the New Testament scriptures, I don't think we're going to find that, that any of these characteristics are unique to Paul himself. I think these six characteristics are fundamental to the Christian ministry as a whole. In other words, all true gospel ministers are going to share in these marks. Now, today we're only going to have time to look at the first three of the marks or characteristics. We'll save the last three for next week. But let's get started right now. Here's our question for today. So what defines a true gospel minister? What defines a true gospel minister? Here's the first thing we see from our text. A true gospel minister is a man called to suffer for the church. A true gospel minister is a man called to suffer for the church. We see this in verse 24. Allow me to read it again. Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, there's a lot packed into this verse, but let's just start by noticing that the Apostle Paul describes his ministry as a ministry of suffering. And suffering was not incidental to Paul's life. It was intrinsic. It was part of what it meant for him to be a gospel minister. That Christ told him that it would be this way back at his conversion. In Acts 9, verse 16, Christ said, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as the Apostle Paul looks back on a very long ministry, he notes all of the different ways that he had been called to suffer. He says his suffering included persecution. Quote, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. He also describes the perils of travel. He says, quote, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers. Paul also mentions the feeling he had that he was constantly in danger. Quote, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. He also notes the physical exhaustion of Christian ministry. Quote, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. He also mentions living in poverty and all of the physical deprivation that comes with it. Quote, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Paul also suffered psychologically. He says, quote, apart from all these other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So you see, Paul knew what it meant to suffer. He suffered all his ministry long, and it wasn't incidental to his ministry. It was part and parcel with Christian ministry. And friends, I think that everyone who has served in full-time Christian ministry for any length of time can identify with these words. Now, maybe we can't identify with everything Paul says, but certainly some of it. Christian ministry is not a fluff job. That's why the New Testament scriptures have these repeated refrains, particularly to young ministers, saying, endure hardship like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. It's going to come. You've got to be ready for it. This is what it means to be a minister of Christ. 
And here's the purpose of a minister's sufferings. We find it in the second part of verse 24. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh or and through my sufferings, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. So Paul, as a minister, was called to suffer. And here was the purpose of his suffering, to fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the church. Now that should raise some real questions in your mind. What exactly is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, there was certainly nothing lacking in the efficacy of Christ's sufferings. The Apostle Paul himself knew that. Look back up to verses 21 and and 22 of the chapter. Paul says to the Colossian believers, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So the Apostle Paul taught the all-sufficiency of the sufferings of Christ for our salvation Nothing needs to be added to to Christ's sufferings. Nothing can be added when it comes to our salvation. It was all secured by His work alone. Listen also to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. This verse says, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You see, a once and for all sacrifice for sins. One man standing in substitution for all of his people. There's nothing lacking in the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. But there is still something lacking in it. What is lacking is its visibility. Not its efficacy, but its visibility. See, friends, we all know that Christ suffered for our sakes. We've read it in the Scriptures. We have heard it from Christian preachers. And yet, none of us, and this would include those Colossian believers, none of us had the opportunity to actually with our own eyes, witness the sufferings of Christ for us. We did not have that opportunity to see the sacrificial love of Christ in visible display. That is what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice. Not its power to save, but in its visibility to all the saints. But you know who people can see? They can see their local minister. Or for this Colossian church, they could see the Apostle Paul. They can see him suffering for their sakes. They can see their own local minister enduring the hate speech and the sleepless nights and the constant headaches, and the financial hardships, and the physical exhaustion, and the anxiety for his church. They can see the government threats that he faces and how he responds to them. And they can see their minister enduring all of this suffering and persevering through it. 
And they can see that he is doing it because he loves them. He is suffering joyfully because he is promoting the well-being of the people God has entrusted to him through it. And that experience of a, a body of people seeing with their physical eyes the real sufferings of the minister that Christ has put in their midst, seeing that in some amazing way at least gives them a glimpse, just a glimpse of the sacrificial love of Christ for them. They see Christ suffering for them through the sufferings of their minister. And in seeing that, their lives can be changed. By seeing that, the elect can be one to faith in Christ. And by it, believers in Christ are emboldened in their faith. It is in this sense that Paul is saying, through my sufferings, I am filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He is saying, I am making the invisible sufferings of Christ visible to all of you as you witness my suffering for your sakes. And this is what gave Paul joy in his sufferings. He says that at the start of the verse, now I rejoice in my sufferings. It's not that Paul enjoyed the suffering of itself, but he rejoiced through the sufferings, knowing the good that it was doing to the people God had entrusted to him. He knew it was redounding to the growth and the strengthening of Christ's church. My friends, the call to ministry is the call to suffer. A Christian leader who is bent on avoiding hardship instead of persevering through it has not yet understood what Christian ministry is all about. So this is the first mark of a true Christian minister. He's a man called of God to suffer for the church. Now we turn to the, to the second characteristic or, or mark. This second one describes the minister's mindset. He's a man called to suffer for the church. He's also a man who understands that his whole ministry is a sacred stewardship. He understands that his whole ministry is a sacred stewardship. Now, what is a stewardship? Well, a stewardship is simply a set of responsibilities that a master will give to his servants. And then he holds his servants accountable for accomplishing those responsibilities. So, for example, the owner of a very large estate might entrust the, the well-being of his building and grounds to one servant. He might then entrust all of the financial matters to another servant. These are the stewardships that he is giving to his servants. These servants do not own the estate, but they've been entrusted with the care of the estate in, in very specific ways. And you can be sure the owner of that estate is going to keep the two accountable because he loves his estate. Well, friends, in a similar way, God in Christ is Lord of the church. He purchased the church with his own blood. And in his position as Lord, he has chosen to delegate some of the responsibility for the care of his church to gospel ministers. 
These are men that he calls and trusts with responsibility and then holds them accountable for how they execute those responsibilities. This comes through clear enough in verse 25. Look at the first part of the verse. Paul describes his own experience. He says, And I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. So notice, notice that language there. God has, has a set of responsibilities related to his church. Paul says, He has given those to me. They came from him. They're given to the minister. And he says, And now it's not for the minister. It's for the good of the church. This is the, the progression of the text. Let's start with the first part of Paul's statement here. This is a stewardship from God. Now, friends, this is very important. Because what it means is that ultimately, a man is not set apart for ministry through the work of an ecclesiastical board. Man certainly doesn't set himself apart for ministry. God may use, by his providence, secondary events, but ultimately, the one who is entrusting the stewardship, calling the man to ministry, is God himself, acting in his position as Lord of the church. And the Apostle Paul speaks of this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. He speaks of his own experience, and he writes, I thank God who has given me strength because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So here's, here's the Apostle Paul. At the time that God called him, he wasn't even a believer yet. But God selected Paul to be a minister in the church. And God, through Christ, changed his heart and then appointed him to his office and then gave him the responsibility to faithfully carry it out. And then Acts chapter 26, in the Apostle Paul's defense before King Agrippa, he goes into more detail. He says to the king, My manner of life from my youth is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. But at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you. So the Apostle Paul did not become a minister of the gospel by means of self-appointment. He wasn't even a Christian yet when Christ called him. But, but God in Christ reached down and in his grace transformed his heart. 
And God said, you, though unworthy, will stand for me and speak. And Paul responded to that call and became an apostle. This is how God works in his church. This is how he works among all his ministers. Not with lights and audible voices anymore, but still with his written word and by his spirit. Now, I generally don't talk much about myself in my sermons, but I'm going to make an exception today. In my own experience, I was converted at the age of nine. And immediately I felt this strong desire to become a pastor. I mean, it was just immediate. At nine years old, I even went to my pastor. And I told him I wanted to become a pastor too. And I asked him if he'd start meeting with me so I could start getting trained for the work. And he said, I'd love to do that. And so we began to meet in his office during the week. And he took me through the pastoral epistles. And we went one by one through the qualifications. And he said, here's what's required for you to become a minister. Let's work on this one. Now let's work on that one. And, and he did that for me as a nine-year-old boy. Then as, as I grew a little bit older, um, what happened to me is what happens to, to a lot of kids I started to question, you know, what I should be doing with my life. And by the time I reached high school, I didn't even know anymore what I was going to do. I was so afraid of public speaking when I was in high school that I managed to skip the speech elective all four years of high school. I opted for a um, study hall instead. And what that meant for me was that uh, when I reached the final semester of my senior year, I was so far behind in my credits that I had to take seven classes in order to graduate on time. But I was just unsure of what I wanted to do with, with my life, and I was really sure that I could not stand in front of people and speak. Too scary. I went off to Wayne State University in Detroit for my freshman year of college, and I majored in public administration, I knew I wanted to make a difference, I just didn't know exactly how. So I chose that for my major, and what I was envisioning at that point in life is, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get a job in Washington working for some think tank, and I'll spend my life making a difference by researching and writing and then handing my findings over to the lawmakers, and hopefully it'll influence their policy decisions. That was kind of where I was at. But friends, during the the months as they continued that that freshman year of college, just more and more that desire for the pastor, it began to grow. And it was becoming completely overpowering. I mean, it got to the point where I would be reading the Bible as part of my devotions in my bedroom, And I'd get so excited by the passage, I would stand up and start preaching a sermon in my empty bedroom through my devotions. I couldn't preach to people, but I could could preach to the empty walls. And I would lay awake at night thinking to myself, you've had so many privileges. If you don't accept a call to ministry, then who would accept it? I was thinking to myself, look, saved at the age of nine years, I have almost no baggage 
like, like with people who are saved later in life. I have a, a clear conscience, and, and I look at the pastoral epistles, and I meet those qualifications. I was working to meet them even as a nine-year-old. And people in my congregation were saying, Brandon, you really need to consider Christian leadership. So I had these external forces encouraging me. And then I had this internal desire that was becoming overwhelming. And finally, just a few months into my freshman year, I, I said, I, I, can't, I can't keep living with this anymore. I've, I've got to go back to that original call. I've got to become a pastor. And so I made a heave offering of my first year of college. All the credits, all the tuition money, it was gone. Started from scratch at a Christian college where I double majored in biblical studies and pastoral studies. And that was in the fall of 2001, 20 years ago. I spent 10 years preparing for the pastorate, and then finally was installed here at Grace Baptist Church, September of 2010. As I look back at, at the forces that were shaping me that, that first semester of college, I can't help but wonder now whether the September 11th attacks was part of what God used. Remember that, that crisis um, hit me during the fall Semester of 2001, September 11th, 2001, changed all of us, caused all of us to reevaluate what we were doing with our lives, those of us who were, who were old enough to, to have clear recollections of the time. It changed our lives, and I can't help but wonder whether God used that as, as one of his tools for shaping my future course. But friends, this is what God does, isn't it? We don't choose ourselves. God chooses us. And then he begins doing his work in us. For some, like the Apostle Paul, it's instantaneous. For others, like me, who are a little more thick-headed, it took a longer process. But God chooses someone for ministry. He qualifies them for ministry. He gives them the internal desire for the work. He uses his local church to reinforce that. They're saying, you need to do this. And then he uses world events to shape your mindset, to cause you to think, this is what I've got to do. God is in the business of calling ministers for his church. And the stewardship of the ministry comes from him. It is given to them, and it is for the good of the church. It's not about the minister's personal fulfillment. Certainly not about him building a power base so that he can pursue his own agenda. No, it's for Christ's church. My friends, the true ministers of God understand these truths with crystal clarity. They see the truth in God's word. They have experienced it in their own lives. And they know the church is not about them. The church is about Christ and his glory. And they feel a heavy weight of responsibility to be faithful to the charge that God has given to them. And what is his stewardship precisely? Well, that takes us to the third characteristic we find it at the second part of verse 25. 
The pastor's charge is very simple. It says, to make the word of God fully known. A pastor is a man called of God to suffer for the church. He's a man who understands that a great stewardship has been handed to him. And he's a man who has dedicated himself to the ministry of the word. That's his job, beginning and end. A Christian minister is not a vision caster, he's not a fundraiser, he's not a brand creator, he's not a community organizer, he's a preacher, plain and simple. And his message is the word of God. You see, friends, the words of the living God are the most important words ever spoken. They they come from the one who made this universe. The words of God tell us who we are and where we came from. They explain our original state of holiness, but then how our race fell under the curse of sin and death. They tell us how God has done a work for us through Christ to reconcile us with himself, to wipe away our record of sins. His word gives us all we need for life and godliness. And the written words of God tell us about the most important man who has ever lived, the Word of God incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ, the ones whose life, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming reign define the life of the Christian. And friends, the words of God written and embodied are of incalculable value. Without them, there is no help or hope for anyone. And yet... There are still so many who know nothing about the Word of God. And so God raises up ministers to, take, to make His Word fully known. And it's a lifelong task because the need is very great and because the Word of God is inexhaustible in its riches. And so God will call a man to the ministry. He will place the man in in a context of his choosing. And then that minister's job is very simple, is to talk to people about Christ using the Holy Scriptures. And as people believe, he will gather a local church, and then he will spend the rest of his life unpacking the riches of this word to those who believe. He will do so publicly and also one by one in private. He will equip them for life, godliness, and fruitful ministry in the context of the local church. This is the minister's job, to make the Word of God fully known. Now, as I conclude, friends, there are so many ideas out there about the proper role of a Christian pastor. Some believe he's nothing more than a chaplain. Some look to him as a CEO. Some think of him as a community organizer. But here in the book of Colossians, he is described as a minister a servant of Christ. He's a man called of God to give his life for the good of the church, which he does by making God's word fully known. It's a job that involves a lot of suffering, a lot of responsibility, and a high level of accountability, and involves a lot of preaching and teaching. But it's the highest calling in the whole world. I wouldn't stoop to be a king. Wouldn't want to reduce myself. My friends, is God calling you to be a minister in his church? Have you begun to feel that internal desire for Christian leadership? God's word says that is a noble desire. 
Have you held your life up to the qualifications listed in the pastoral epistles? Do you see whether your life matches what the scriptures say must be true of you to be a minister of the gospel? Have the members of your church begun encouraging you to think about Christian leadership? Is it time for you to make that move and begin the training process? Consider what God might have for you. Church members, are your expectations for your own local ministers in line with what the Bible teaches? Do you think your pastor is just a chaplain? Do you think he's supposed to act like a CEO? Do you think it's his role to, to energize people for a particular political or social cause? Or do you understand that he is a minister of the word? Are you eager to receive his ministry? Are you eager to hold him accountable, making sure he does not veer from his God-ordained role? Are you praying for the faithfulness of the ministers that God has brought here? Well, Friends, let's all pray together now. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful passage from Colossians. Lord, what an exalted picture of Christian ministry it presents to us. And Lord, what a, what a humbling thing it is for those of us who have been called and ordained and placed into ministry to, to read of what that ministry entails Lord, help us to be faithful to our callings. Help us never to veer to the right or to the left. Help us to chart a steady course until you return or call us home. Lord, I pray for each of the people in attendance today, for those watching via live stream, Lord, that if you are calling them into ministry, that they would become sensitive to that call. And no matter what their age is, what's, where they are in life right now, that they would be prepared to make a heave offering of it in favor of doing what you would have them to do now. Lord, help this congregation always to be in love with your word, to love to hear your word taught publicly and privately, to love to to see the gospel go forward in this community that others might come to know you. Lord, help us all to fulfill the ministries and the jobs to which you have called us. We pray this because we know we are lost without your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.